Welcome to an enlightening podcast from IslamPodcasts.com. We encourage our listeners to please comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please remind your family and friends to also visit IslamPodcasts.com for engaging discussions on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, Seerah, and much more. إن الحمد لله إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا أحده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد فقال المولى عز وجل في القرآن المجيد بعد أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله حق تقاته ولا تموتن إلا وأنتم مسلمون السلام عليكم brothers and sisters إن شاء الله I want to start actually by by painting a picture so I want you guys to think about this إن شاء الله so I want you to think about a society that is organized on the basis of ethnicity and tribes. I want you to think about a society where there exist strict yet complex rules on social and hierarchical interaction. You know, where the ruling class, they are wealthy beyond means which could suffice them. And the poor are excluded from any worldly joy. I want you to think about a society with few in the top and the rest of the people subservient to the whims and desires and racism is rife there is no value to women and slavery and exploitation is rampant tribalism for this society has people's survival instinct on overdrive and instability is the population stipend now brothers and sisters what society am i talking about now this this could be al-hind and you would not be wrong to say that this could be al-quds in fact you could say it is any muslim country or maybe even the west but actually what i've just described is 7th century arabia and in the midst of this chaos of what i've just described allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent his messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam with guidance and the deen of truth so that it could dominate over all other ways of life and through the teachings of islam through the teachings of islam the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam he created a movement in society that called for radical change a fundamental upheaval of the status quo consisting of arabs and non-arabs black white and brown male and female young and old rich and poor educated and layman strong and weak all of these different types of people the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he united behind a thought a belief that the creator of mankind should be worshiped alone and that this creator is the one who is best to organize society's affairs and this movement this movement was it blossomed into a state with authority when the ansar the residents and power brokers of medina they accepted with open arms migrants yes 
migrants, the muhajireen and the Prophet ﷺ into Madinatul Munawwara, the city of lights. So brothers and sisters, this hijrah symbolized the wiping out from the onset, from the birth of the Khilafah, this us and them mentality. As the Ansar and the Muhajirin, they became one unit and indeed this state was a beacon of light for human civilization. So it is not strange that the Messenger said, as reported in Sahih Bukhari and Muslim, كانت بنو إسرائيل تصوصهم الأنبياء that indeed the children of Bani Israel, the Jews, their politics was conducted by the prophets. And every time a prophet passed away, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would send them another messenger. But there are no more prophets after me. The Prophet said there will be no more prophets after me, but there will be khulafa and they will number in many. So the Sahaba, they said, Oh Prophet of Allah, what do you order us to do? The Prophet said, Fu bi bay'atil awwali fal awwal. Give them the khulafa, the bay'ah, the pledge of allegiance one after the other. Wa'atuhum haqquhum and give them their rights. Fa inna Allah sa'iluhum ammastar'ahum. For indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will ask them about their responsibilities. So Muslims must remember that the system of governance in Islam is the khilafah, in which sovereignty is to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and the rules are applied fairly to all. The basis of ruling is the Quran and the Sunnah with ishtihad permitted on new matters on the basis of usul. And Islam has a unique view on citizenship that no other state has developed. The concept of citizen in Islam is not based on your political leaning. It's not based on whether you're left or right or your economic output that you produce. The concept of citizenship in Islam is not based on you know, what religion you follow or what caste you belong to. But rather, according to Islam, a citizen is the one who lives under the authority and the protection of the Khilafah. Citizens within the Khilafah can be Muslim or non-Muslim. They can be of any ethnicity and they can speak any language. The non-Muslim citizens are known as the Ahlul Dhimma, the people of the contract. They pledge to obey the rules of the state and in return, and in return the Khilafah safeguards their life, their property, their belief, their mind, and their honor. And Islamic history, brothers and sisters, is full of examples proving that the Khilafah was the only true state that protected the rights of its citizens. No other ideology has been able to do that. The success of the Islamic ideology is due to the concept, concept of taqwa held by the Muslim rulers because they understand it is their duty to protect the Ahlul Zimma. And this conduct comes specifically from the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu as reported in Bukhari that the Prophet Sallallahu says, Man qatala mu'ahadan lam yarih ra'ihat al-jannah wa inna rihuha tujadu min masirati arba'ina amman that whosoever kills a mu'ahid a non-Muslim that has an agreement to live under the protection of the Khilafah, he shall not smell the fragrance of Jannah. He shall not smell the fragrance of Paradise, even though its fragrance can be smelled at a distance of traveling over 40 years. And through the many evidences found in Islamic sources, the classical scholars of Islam have detailed the rights of the Muslims towards the Dhimmi. The famous Maliki jurist, Shihab al-Din al-Qarafi, who was based in Egypt, states the covenant of protection imposes upon us certain obligations towards the Ahlul Dhimma. They are our neighbors, 
under our shelter, under our protection, upon the guarantee of Allah, his messenger, وسلم, and the religion of Islam. Whosoever violates these obligations against any one of them, or does some injury to him, or assists in it, has breached the guarantee of Allah and his messenger, and history is littered with key examples of the justice of the Khilafah. Let's start with how Islam even entered these regions. Let's look at Al-Quds, when the famous Sahabi, the second Caliph of the Muslims, Umar ibn al-Khattab, he took the keys of Jerusalem in the 17th year of Hijrah. Under his leadership, under the leadership of Umar ibn al-Khattab, the Muslim armies began to appear in the vicinity of Al-Quds. And in charge of Al-Quds at that time was the patriarch, Sophronius. He was a representative of the Byzantine government and a member of the Christian church. And although numerous Muslim armies under the command of Khalid ibn al-Walid and Amr ibn al-As began to surround the city, Sophronius, he refused to surrender the city unless Umar ibn al-Khattab came himself to accept the surrender, to come and accept the amana. And having heard of such a condition, Umar ibn al-Khattab, he left Medina, traveling alone with one donkey and one servant. And when he arrived in Al-Quds, he was greeted by Sophronius, who undoubtedly must have been amazed that the Khalifa of the Muslims, one of the most powerful people in the world at that time, was dressed in no more than simple robes and was indistinguishable from his servant. So when the Muslims took over, they detailed in the Umri Treaty details of how they will deal with the population and the minorities and they allowed the Christians to keep their faith and their churches. And at that time, this was by far one of the most progressive treaties in history. For comparison, just 23 years earlier, when Al-Quds was conquered by the Persians, a general massacre was ensued. And another massacre happened when Jerusalem was conquered by the Crusaders from the Muslims in 1099. In fact, in the aftermath of the killing of the Al Jazeera journalist Sherin Abu Akleh, a priest from Al-Quds came out blaming the Muslim rulers, saying that you need to protect us as stated in the Umri Treaty. This is the legacy of Islam in Al-Quds. And the same is the case when Islam went to Al-Hind. Islam went there in the first place because Muslim sisters had been kidnapped from Sri Lanka, traveling to the Arabian lands, and the Indian leader at that time was not willing to do anything. So under the command of, under, under, so under the command of Muhammad bin Qasim, the Islamic armies, they went to liberate our sisters. And at the same time, they brought prosperity to that region. Part of the success of the Islamic conquest in, in Al-Hind is due to the leniency that the Buddhists and the Dalits, who were the lowest caste in, the Indian, in, the, in, the, in Hinduism, they faced. And these people, they welcomed the Islamic conquerors with open arms, who saw the governments of the Maharaja as illegitimate, who had usurped the power from the Rai dynasty. These people were also greatly oppressed under the governments of the Brahmins. And even though these new territories were governed by the Sharia, Hindu communities still maintained their local independence, and they were able to resolve their disputes according to the dictates of their own faith, just as it was allowed to Jews and Christians in Al-Quds. Islam maintained their traditional hierarchical and leadership institutions. However, there were not only Hindus among non-Muslims, but also Buddhists who, like the Hindus, were incorporated and included into the new administration and respected if they fulfilled their legal obligations. See, brothers and sisters, when Islam came, it didn't come just as a mercy for Islam. 
but rather Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ Indeed, He did not send the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam except as a rahmah for the whole of mankind. And these people, the non-Muslim populations of Al-Quds and Al-Hind historically have seen this. And after this great victory of Muhammad bin Qasim, other provincial capitals such as Brahmanabad, Alor and Multan, they would be successfully taken over, all with few casualties. All with few casualties on both sides proving to be swift conquests due to the lack of resistance by the population because they were sick and tired of their rulers. The leaders that followed in Al-Hind, such as Babur and Arongzeb, they maintained ties with the non-Muslim population, the diverse non-Muslim population, and protected their places of worship. In fact, when the Mongols came through India, the reason why their places of worship, their churches, their temples, the reasons why they, they still exist till this day is because the Delhi Sultans protected them by resisting Mongol destruction. Now, brothers and sisters, what I have mentioned is not an attempt to whitewash history, but for a fact, the Khilafah's policy from Al-Hind to Al-Quds was not to destroy. Rather, Muslims remained a minority in India and allowed for the temples to remain. In contrast, in contrast, look at the West. They took 150 years to completely annihilate the local population, the local indigenous population of Americas and Australia, where they eradicated the remnants of the indigenous people, whereas Islam existed in Al-Hind for five times longer, and yet the Hindus were always the majority. The Jews even experienced the golden age under the Abbasid Khulafa, and it was the Ottoman Caliph Bayezid who accepted the Jews who were fleeing the Spanish Inquisition. And I hasten to add, at the hands of Europeans, not an anomaly in history. And when they fled to Istanbul, the capital of the Uthmani Khilafah, one of the courtiers, one of the courtiers, he said in reference to Ferdinand, the king of Spain at that time, that he was a smart ruler. Bayezid, he retorted, foolish is the one who impoverished his nation and enriched mine in reaction to the influx of skilled laborers from amongst the Jewish refugees. Now, oppressing minorities and dealing with non-Muslims was by and large not a problem for the Khilafah. Let's take the example of Imam Ali, who took a non-Muslim citizen, the Jew, to court over his stolen shield. Now, Imam Ali, he lost his shield and he took this non-Muslim to, to, to court. And when he went to Shureh, an, who was the judge at that time, Shureh an, asked Imam Ali to present his witnesses to which Imam Ali called to the stand his son Hassan and his employee, both of which Shureh radiallahu an reminded him were inadmissible as witnesses because one was his son, a family member, and one was his employee. They could not be impartial. So, Imam, so Shureh radiallahu an judged in favor of the Jew. And when this Jew, he saw the mercy of Islam and the justice of Islam, he accepted Islam. He took his shahada and he said, Oh, Amirul Mu'mineen, indeed, this shield is yours. I actually, he said, Oh Amirul Mu'mineen, this shield was yours. Indeed, I followed your army while you were leaving Sifin and it fell from your camel, Al-Awraq. And Imam Ali, as a return, gifted him his shield because he became Muslim. This is the history of Islam. This is the history of the Khilafah in dealing with minorities. And in the rare case that there were misdemeanors, what was the response? We see in Al-Hind and Al-Quds systematic oppression of Muslims and when the oppression is brought to the courts, it falls on deaf ears. 
There is no protection available under Hindutva or Zionism. Whereas, let's look at the example of Amr ibn al-As, whose son beat up a Coptic Christian because he lost a race. And when the Copt boy and his father raised a complaint with Amr ibn al-As, the provincial leader at that time, they did not get the justice that they so wanted because Amr ibn al-As didn't do anything. So the Copt, he travelled all the way to Medina and raised a complaint with Umar ibn al-Khattab who summoned, ibn Amas, who summoned Amr ibn al-As and his son to Medina. And he gave the Copt boy the whip, his whip and said, whip his son and take revenge for what he did. And after he did that, he said, now whip his father for not bringing the due justice when the court was raised. This is the situation of the Khilafah. Subhanallah, the non-Muslims were willing to travel from Egypt to Medina at that time, months worth of journey, because they were all aware that justice would be served in the lands of the Muslims. So brothers and sisters, we can clearly see that indeed the Khilafah was the sole state historically that looked after its citizens. So what will the future Khilafah do for the contemporary problems that exist in these regions? Well, first of all, rule of law will be applied. No one is above the law. The rule of applied will be on everyone. Let's look at the example as, named, as mentioned in An-Nasai, where a woman from the tribe of Bani Mahzum, she stole, and she was from a noble tribe. And the Sahaba were worried that she's from a noble tribe, so they said, who will intervene on behalf of this noble woman to the Prophet ﷺ? So they chose Zayd ibn Haritha, the adopted son of the Prophet ﷺ. And when Zayd ibn Haritha approached the Prophet ﷺ to intercede on her behalf for the had not to be applied on her, for the punishment not to be applied, the Prophet ﷺ's face turned red in anger. He said, Wallahi, the nations before you were destroyed because they rushed to implement the punishment on the poor and the needy, but they hesitated to apply the punishment on the nobility. Wallahi, if the daughter of Muhammad, Fatima, stole, I would cut her hand off. This is the issue of rule of law. No one is above it. Now, let's look at some of these regions that we are addressing. Caste and ethnicity. Let's look at this topic. India is the second most populated country in the world with approximately 1.4 billion people it is expected to become the most populous country in the next 10 years due to its 0.97 percent growth rate surpassing china 65 percent of its population is under the age of 35 so they are young with means of access to technology and not all of them are loyal to asian culture it has more than 2,000 ethnic groups officially has 23 languages but Islam does not have a problem with the diversity. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, وَجَعَلْنَاكُمْ شُعُوبًا وَقَبَعِلًا لِتَعَارَفُوا إِنَّ أَكْرَمَكُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهِ أَتْقَاكُمْ That indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created you in tribes and nations so that you may get to know one another. And indeed, the most noble of you are those who have taqwa, those who of you who have God consciousness. And it is this concept that makes us better than one another. Islam doesn't have a problem with languages. Unlike the colonialists who went into these regions and played with language politics, Islam does not wish to eradicate languages and doesn't see a problem in having languages, uh, different types of languages, but it makes the Arabic language, the language of Wahi, the adopted language of the state, as the means of common ground. If we take a glimpse into the job description and qualifications needed to be an imam of the Grand Mosque in the Ottoman Empire, at the time of Sultan Suleiman in 1558, we see that the job description says the imam needs to speak Arabic, Latin, Turkish, Persian, and the language of the Balkans. Education. Let's look at education as a, as a factor in these regions. 
the literacy rate in India is approximately 65%. The literacy rate in India is approximately 65%. But what's interesting is, is that the post-secondary education, so education after the age of 16 plus, the rate is only 25%. Arguably one of the key moments for young people to engage and discover new ideas and find their identity and the truth due to economic constraints and the education is not available to the vast majority. The Prophet ﷺ made education and seeking knowledge mandatory when he said that indeed seeking knowledge is an obligation upon every single Muslim and the Khilafah will vastly invest in the education infrastructure. Around 30% of schools in India do not have usable toilet facilities and 25% of schools in India do not even have access to fresh drinking water. Indeed, knowledge is one of the key ingredients that leads to people finding the truth and separating from irrational beliefs which certain caste systems are based on. The Islamic method of learning it emphasizes the use of the rational thinking and the use of the mind combined with the revelation to solve practical problems and not rote learning as a legacy of the archaic British system, the British education system that has been left behind. The second factor that leads to Irrational beliefs is poverty. Umar bin al-Khattab is narrated to say that poverty leads to kufr. Why? Because in desperate situations, people will do whatever they need to do. Wealth distribution is a serious problem in these regions. The rise of millionaires and wealth in the hands of a few has become a common phenomenon. According to a forecast of high net worth individual, growth figures published in the latest Henley Global Citizens Report the number of dollar millionaires and billionaires will grow by 80% in India. 764,000 dollar millionaires existed in India in 2019. 764,000 dollar millionaires existed in India in 2019. Yet, 60% of Indians live off less than $3 a day. Now, Islam makes opportunities a possibility by lifting people out of poverty. Circulation of wealth is a priority due to the ayah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in Surah Al-Hashr. So that wealth is not just a commodity amongst the rich. And, Allah, and Islam does not give low wages to its employees and its own population in order to compete with China to fulfill Western appetites. Indeed, Islam and that region needs an independent economy built to serve the needs of its own people, providing food, shelter and clothing basic rights for its populations. Now in conclusion, my brothers and sisters, Islam does not politicize the concept of citizenship. It is not based on your political leanings or the economic output of an individual. It is not based on whose son you are or and who you know, but rather it is based on the constitution and living under the realm and protection of the Khilafah. Mankind, not just Muslims, but mankind must reject nationalism, which is the cause of oppression of minorities worldwide and work towards the re-establishment of the Khilafah, which is the only perfect system for mankind. So I started by painting a picture, so I will end by completing this picture. A society that is organized on the basis of familial and community responsibilities. A society where the rules are applied equally to all. A society where the hierarchy is that we are all slaves to our master Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Where the ruling class are shepherds, and look after the affairs of the poor and the needy. No social group is excluded from political participation. A society that is disciplined. A society that is disciplined and rejects following whims and desires. Racism is outlawed. 
women are protected and honored, and slavery and exploitation is banished. Brothers and sisters, what society am I talking about? You will not be wrong to say maybe this is the Khilafah Rashid of the past, or the, Uthma, or the Umayyad era, or the Abbasid era, or the Ottoman era. But no, this is the future Khilafah, whose capital will be in Al-Quds, and its frontiers will be in Al-Hind. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Podcasts on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran tafsir, and sirah are available at islampodcasts.com as well as on iTunes. Rate, review, and comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please subscribe. Share and tell a friend about islampodcasts.com. 